Today we're going to be uh, in the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 4. Uh, we're going to look at verses 17 through 19. We're going to be finishing up this unique portion of the letter in Philippians, uh, that, that portion from verses 10 through 19 of chapter 4. But as we head into it, I, I feel it's necessary to mention again for those of you who are visiting that this is a sermon on giving, but uh, we are not using the pulpit to try and raise money for the potential school that Bill just mentioned. Uh, again, we've already collected the offering, so you can just leave your wallets tucked away until you leave. Uh, the reason that we're talking about giving, though, is because whenever I'm up here, I am going through the book of Philippians, and this is the next section in the book of Philippians. If you don't believe me, you can ask your neighbor later, and they'll affirm, yes, he has been going through that. But since the only way to preach this text faithfully without talking about giving would be to not preach it, and since doing that would not be faithful to God's Word and how He arranged it in this book, here we are. So, I've mentioned before that this section of Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 19, it's not only unique to Paul, but it is unique among all the letters of antiquity, whether they're in the Bible or not. And Paul uses this section at the end of the letter to acknowledge a gift from the Philippians. And, and most historians agree that while there are other letters uh, that express thankfulness and recognition of a gift that has been received, there is nothing in antiquity that has survived to this day that acknowledges and expresses gratitude in the, in the tactful way and in the length that Paul does it here. There's simply nothing like it. I mentioned in previous sermons that this is such a unique section of Scripture and, and of this letter that, that many critical scholars have actually made the argument that verses 10 through 19 should actually be thought of as a separate letter that was just added by a scribe later on, and, and it just ended up becoming part of the book of Philippians, and so it should really be thought of as like a first and second Philippians, with verses 10 through 19 being second Philippians. And so that, that's kind of the thinking. However, as I said before, there is not a single shred of textual evidence that supports that theory, and there's actually much that argues against it. So the main argument really just boils down to people thinking that it just seems that that's got to be what happened. That's essentially the argument. And again, in previous sermons, I demonstrated why it is reasonable and preferable that this is exactly the way that Paul wanted to communicate this message, and you'll see a little more of that this morning. And something that makes this section so interesting is that everyone agrees that the purpose of this section is for Paul to recognize and to encourage and to express gratitude for a particular financial gift that he had received from the Philippians, but he never actually says, thank you. Though it is clear, especially from the verses we're going to be looking at today, that he is thankful for their gift. The way Paul talks about the gift in these verses helps us to understand the concept that we talked about last time when we looked at verses 14 through 16. The last time I taught from Philippians, Paul, Paul really is commending them as his partners. He's commending them as his partners through this gift. The way he speaks here demonstrates that his understanding of the gift should be thought of not so much as the giving of money from one person to another, but as the Philippians demonstrating their partnership in his ministry. A ministry that Paul is indicating that they share with him. That is what we talked about last time. This section of Scripture, now from verses 14 through 19, is one of the key texts on Christian giving that we see in the New Testament. And that first incredibly important characteristic of Christian giving being understood as representing true partnership, is it's, it's key that we understand that. Giving is not merely the exchanging of resources. Real Christian giving is not merely the exchanging of resources. It is not about something that once belonged to you, now belonging to someone else because you 
generously gave it to them. It is actually the understanding that the giving is playing a key part in the mission of the church, in the one mission of the church in some way. The mindset isn't giving something to someone else to help them accomplish their task. It is you accomplishing your part of the ministry while they accomplish their part of the same ministry. That's how we need to see giving. Christian giving is simply one part of the one great goal of the mission of the church. If giving makes us partners, then we want to make sure that we are absolutely clear on who we are partnering with. It means that we need to make sure that we are not like so many in the Christian world who seem to just understand the fact that God commands us to give, He does that, but then he just kind of leaves it up to our own discretion about who we give to, acting as if he hasn't laid out clear principles in his word that should inform our giving. So that was the principle that we went into great depth on last time from verses 14 to 16. And when we, like the Philippians, are obediently partnering with a person or a ministry that is faithfully proclaiming the true gospel, That is, fulfilling the Great Commission and biblically building the church like the Apostle Paul was, then we will come to understand and practice the four characteristics of Christian giving that we're going to see in the text today. So that's our outline. Four characteristics that should be true of all Christian giving. And so the points today are, number one, Christian giving is effective in its work. Point number two, Christian giving is excellent in its aim. Number three, Christian giving is exalting in its nature. Number four, Christian giving is inexpensive in its cost. And I know that that's, that just messes it up, that I word there. Inexpensive. But it's essential that you write inexpensive and not expensive because that'll ruin the point. So Christian giving is inexpensive in its cost. So let's go ahead and read this whole passage from verses 10 through 19 to remind us of the context of what we're about to look at today. So Philippians 4, verses 10 through 19, Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned... In whatever situation, I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, When I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. So before we get into our outline today, uh, what should stick out to us as we read that passage is that Paul does not mention that he has a need that they are meeting. He actually doesn't use any type of language like, Boy, I don't know what I would have done without your help. Or, or whew, if you guys hadn't given when you did, things would have gotten bad. He doesn't say anything like that. In fact, he actually goes out of his way to say the opposite in those first few verses and a little bit in that section we read. He is separating himself from, from all of those false apostles and false teachers and even the type that still exists today by showing that the giving of the Philippian church actually has no influence whatsoever on how he understands his ministry. He he trusts that God will always make available to him the exact resources he needs for whatever it is that God has called him to do. His comments here are 
are not, though, demonstrating ingratitude. They're not demonstrating ingratitude, but rather Paul is continuing to teach them. Even in this, even in this thank you section, he's teaching them the nature of Christian living and Christian ministry. God is always accomplishing His purposes through His people, and it is a blessing for us to be used by Him. But we are in no way needed by Him. Both the givers and the beneficiaries of the resources being given are being used by God for God's good purposes. And Paul is demonstrating that this is his understanding of of his part of God's work and of their part in God's work through him. So this is important to keep in mind because while while anytime we, we give, we are partnering with a ministry or a church that is being obedient to the Great Commission, when, when we're doing that, there are definite needs that our gifts are being used to meet, that is certain. But the needs are being met by God through us. We have the joy of being a part of that, but the truth is, the truth is what Jesus said. He, Jesus, will build His church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against Him. The fact that so often the means that he uses are his people should humble us as we give and not lead to boasting in the necessity of our own generosity. It's kind of like uh, what Mordecai said to Esther back in the book of Esther. He says to her, if you keep silent, if you keep silent, if you don't do this, if you don't act, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. Mordecai is able to say that to Esther because he believes all the promises of God about all his future plans for Israel. God is not depending on Esther for the fulfillment of his promises. Yet Mordecai goes on to say, who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. In other words, he's saying you are in a position to be used by God to accomplish the very thing that he has promised to do, Esther, That is a privilege for you. A privilege for you to be used that way, but it's not as if God is dependent on you to do it. And we're in a similar situation. What a privilege that God would use us, use us, use our giving for this wonderful purpose of building His church. So, with that that understanding in place, with the understanding of partnership and the partnership and privilege of Christian giving as the foundation for what we will be talking about today. Let's get into our outline and look at these four characteristics that should inform our thinking on the privilege of giving. Point number one, Christian giving is effective in its work. Christian giving is effective in its work. And we see that right the way, right there in verse 15. Paul says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. So again, Paul reminds us that the thing he seeks in this situation, that which he desires, is not the actual gift itself, but rather that he knows that these people that he has expressed such love for throughout this letter are going to benefit. It's going to be to their benefit by giving this gift. So if you look carefully at this verse, you can actually see a couple of different ways in which this gift from the Philippians is effective, and neither of them are actually the typical way that we would think of as as meeting needs. Again, even though there is no doubt that this gift was used in some way to meet some form of gospel need, look at what Paul points actually points out to be the effectiveness of the gift. He calls this the fruit of that increases to your credit. So the the Greek word there for fruit, uh, the word karpon, is the word, that's the word translated for fruit here. Some translations use the word profit, translated as profit instead of fruit. There's actually a good reason for that, and, and I'll mention that in a bit. But this literally is the word for fruit, and I think that it is a good translation in this context. And the way that Paul actually understands the gift as benefiting himself isn't primarily, the way it benefits Paul isn't primarily in the meeting of a need in the gift itself, but it benefits him. It is effective in that 
he gets to see this credit to the account of the Philippian believers. So what Paul sees here is what he says in verse 17, what he says he seeks is this gift from the Philippians is actually an encouraging answer to his prayer about them. So flip back a couple pages to chapter 1 and look at verses 9 through 11. At the beginning of Philippians, this is how Paul says he is praying for them. He says, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with the knowledge and all discernment, with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So that word fruit there in verse 11, it's the same word for fruit in the passage that we are looking at. Paul's primary concern for the Philippians throughout the entirety of the letter is that they would it's not that they would reciprocate the kindness that he has shown to them in his ministry towards them by giving him money. That's not his hope. That's not why he is ministering to them. But rather, it's that their lives would be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. That they would be growing. That they would be growing. And so Paul's main concern, the thing that he truly sees here in this gift is an answer to his prayer about the sanctification of the Philippian. He can, he can rejoice not so much in the gift, but in what it represents about the people that he loves so much and has given so much of his life for. And so I just, I just want to take a moment And place this part of the effectiveness of giving before you all. Because I want to make sure that you, that you, Grace Church, understands the full effectiveness of your giving in an area that you might not generally think of. So every year, around this time, we come up with a budget that represents how we will accomplish the mission of our church from a financial standpoint. And Bill always gets up here and he calls it, what he calls it, the, the roadmap to evangelism and disciple. And that, that is true. That really is what it accomplishes. We, we take a great interest in stewarding the giving of this church well. This is how we will do the ministry of this church from a financial standpoint. It's important to us, and we hope that you are confident that we will do our best to make sure that the hard-earned money that you set aside for your faithful giving will be used to the righteous end for which you gave it. So I do hope that you can take, take joy, take great, take great joy in the effectiveness of your giving in that regard. We, we do hope that that is true. But just because this is something that I, d- I don't think that we think about when it comes to our giving, I also want you to know the effectiveness of your giving on the hearts of the elders, on the hearts of those in leadership, and should be on your hearts as well. Because just like Paul, the mere existence of faithful, sacrificial giving is of so much more encouragement than the numbers themselves. And this church has been such an encouragement to us in this area. Your giving, we see it as a testimony to us of God's work in you. And I'm telling you this from firsthand recent experience as just this month, even after the incredibly generous, generous special gift that we collected for, for Grace Baptist Church down in Cape Coral after the, uh, the hurricane, a, a gift, by the way, that far exceeded our expectations. But even not counting that, this church gave beyond our budgeted numbers. And, and when we see that, You need to know that when we see that in a financial report, I promise you that our response is never, oh good, we know exactly what to do with that money. It is always, it is always to praise God and thank Him for our church and for the incredible work that He is doing in the lives of the people of this church that's evidenced by their sacrificial generosity. And the reason is because it is a tangible, it's tangible evidence that our church is fruitful, 
that the picture of Christian faithfulness and, and striving for Christ's likeness that we are trying to teach and that we are praying toward is taking place. It's evidence that that's happening. And that is so encouraging to us, and it should be encouraging to you also as part of this church. That that's who you're surrounded by, that, that this church is a, is a church of people who, who, who do not love the world or the things of this world. They are those who are denying themselves and taking up their cross and following Him. It's evidence that they are those who have fixed their eyes on Jesus. That you are those who are living as citizens of heaven. That you are those who truly understand that your treasure is not on earth and therefore your hearts are not also. We're so thankful that this is evidence that you are those who have, you know, in the words of, of Martin Luther, let goods and kindred go and this mortal life also. When anyone in any type of shepherding leadership position sees evidence of these types of things in the lives of the people that they are serving, whether it be evidence in their giving or in any other type of way that they might manifest these characteristics, you have to know, and I hope it encourages you, that it has such an encouraging effect on the elders. It just, put, it just puts fire in our bones. It fills us with joy. Our, our, hearts, our hearts truly are filled more than the offering bags are. So, Paul points out to them that one of the great effects of their giving is that in it, he is able to see that which he truly seeks when it comes to ministry, the evidence of the sanctification that he has been praying for. And, and even though this might not have been the way that they thought they were going to be helping Paul through their giving, what a joy it would be for them to know that this truly is having this effect on this man. So, that is the first part of the effectiveness of the giving that we see in this verse. It has the effect of being evidence to Paul of the very sanctification that he seeks and prays for in those that he has been ministering to. And then, of course, the other effect is how this same reality that encourages Paul is also a benefit to the Philippians. He says that the fruit is an increase to their credit. To their credit. And so he's once again using accounting type of language here. That is why uh, the word profit could be an, uh, an appropriate translation uh, for, for that word fruit there, to try and stay in step with the whole accounting metaphor. So using this type of language is extremely interesting because it once again plays against our normal understanding of giving as merely a transaction. Right? We, would, we would tend to see giving as taking a debit from our account and then making it a credit in the account of another. So debit, our account, credit, and another account that is not ours. And from a purely financial standpoint, that is what is taking place. Money from your account is gone, and that money now appears in the account of another. So there's a sense in which that is true. The physical sense that that is true, but Paul is saying, especially from a spiritual standpoint, that the exact opposite is true. You're not actually debiting your account in that same way, at least. He is saying that the gift that they have given actually registers as a credit in their own account. So how, how can that be? Well, it's because of the truth of what Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount, in, Ma in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 19 through 21. Where he says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasure, treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. When you faithfully give of your time and of your resources towards the work of the Great Commission, something unique happens. That giving, that debit, becomes a credit. It's like you debit a temporal account of yours in order to credit your eternal account. It is an investment that is 100% certain because God has told us what will happen. Because we know the future. It's like 
It's like in Scripture, we're kind of being given the ultimate insider trading tip. You have to think of it as, as this is actually better than if we were somehow able to know, if you're alive back in 1975, if you were somehow able to know on April 4th, 1975, that that's the day that two childhood friends would get together and found Microsoft. And if you were able to, if you knew that then, if you knew what you know now about Microsoft and you knew that then, you would get in on that on day one. And knowing what you know now, even if the investment caused you some sort of financial hardship for a few years, you would care less about that. You could care less about that or about any ridicule that might come your way for getting involved with some guy named Bill Gates during a time when people were debating whether or not using a typewriter was even worth the hassle. You can get through all of that because knowing that in less than 50 years, this little startup company is going to be worth $2,135 billion. That knowledge would probably help you sleep soundly on the cold nights. Well, in a much greater way, the Bible tells us that we are investing in an eternal inheritance that makes $2,135 billion actually look like nothing. While the money and resources that we give in this life will be used and exhausted, true in a temporal way, the fruit that increases to our credit is safely stored where moth and rust can never destroy. So, Christian giving is effective in its work. It is effective in its work, and in more ways than we typically think about effectiveness. That's point number one. Now, point number two. Point two, Christian giving is excellent in its aim. Christian giving is excellent in its aim. So again, look at, look at verse 18 again. He says, I have received full payment and more. I am supplied, having received, or I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice, acceptable and pleasing to God. So do you see the way in which Paul describes their giving? This isn't just throwing some money at a cause to feel better about yourself and hoping it sticks to something useful. You can see intentionality in what the Philippians are doing in their giving. So I won't go back in detail at this time, uh, but you can go listen to the last sermon when you have a chance and be reminded of all of the reasons why Paul is the exact type of ministry partner that they would want to support with their giving. They they know him well. They know the type of ministry he does. They know that he is faithful. They know that he is an elder qualified man working for the growth of the church according to God's design for what a church should look like. So they know all this, and therefore they have identified this in him, and so they're partnering with him, seeing him as a partner and not just a recipient of a, of a hopeful, obedient gift. That's, that's not what they're doing. They are generous and they are intentional in their giving. Notice that he says, Paul says, that he has received the payment in full, the full payment and more, meaning that they made sure that they gave over and above what he was expecting from them. They took it upon themselves to make sure that Paul was not lacking anything. So that statement translated as received full payment is another one of those terms that was considered an accounting term, and it was almost like giving them a receipt. In fact, that actual phrase is found on the bottom of ancient receipts that we have from that time period. So by saying it this way, Paul is recognizing that he has received the full amount that they intended to send and that they have actually given even more on top of that. So what we see in that, what we see in this phrase, we see the mark of excellence in that they were serious about thinking through their gift. They thought it through. It indicates that they had an idea of what he needed and they committed to get him that amount. It was not merely a love offering of seeing what people have available at the time and sending it along, even though even though there is a good place for that in Christian giving sometimes when we're, when we're giving to a cause that's unknown or a cause that's ongoing. But even then we should be intentional in our thinking. They, but, but the Philippians have a definite amount in mind because they had a definite understanding of Paul's ministry. 
They knew the ministry that they were giving towards. So they made sure that they sent that amount, and then adding to that excellence, they gave beyond that, beyond what he was expecting. To the point where he can now say, I am well supplied. That's what he says. I am well supplied. Again, this phrase communicates so much more than a mere thank you. It is Paul recognizing that the concern of these wonderful, generous Philippians isn't merely that they give whatever they they can. Their concern is not merely we need to be obedient to giving, and Paul is the type of person that we should be giving to, even though that by itself would be a much better mindset for giving than the average Christian seems to have. But by Paul saying, I am well supplied, he is recognizing that the Philippians' concern isn't merely their obedience to giving, their concern is actually for Paul. Their concern is Paul. Paul is the minister in this particular partnership, and we are the supplier. So for us to truly be faithful, to give excellently, we need to know if there is any more need from our side of the partnership. So do you see the difference here between just emotionally giving to causes that stir your heart as opposed to thoughtful, intentional, purposeful Christian giving. It's like when an infomercial comes on and they start showing you pictures of sad children or puppies and they're just asking you, just give whatever you can. Just reach over, give whatever you can. Call this number now. That's not what Christian giving should look like. It's not suddenly spontaneous. Sometimes a spontaneous needs arise, but we, even in those times, are thoughtful and intentional. And it's not actually to say that you shouldn't be emotionally moved by the cause of the gospel and the work of seeing sinners repent and turn to Christ. Seeing Christians being discipled out of horrible circumstances into positions where they are now being used to help others grow in their sanctification. And seeing churches being built where there were no churches, no faithful churches before, of course you're going to be emotionally involved by those situations. You have the Holy Spirit in you. But we're not to be those who act based purely on emotional responses. Rather, we take action with heart and mind engaged. We act lovingly and strategically. Those two things work together. The Philippians love Paul. Their hearts are truly with him, and that is why it is so important to them that the only way that they can conceive of giving to him is in an excellent way. And then we see another example of excellence in how they planned out how the gifts are going to get there. Now you see their, their excellent intentional giving in that too. They, they, they sent him Epaphroditus. They sent the money along with Epaphroditus. They, they didn't just send it with anyone. We know from chapter 2 that Epaphroditus is a man of exceedingly high character. So they were thinking, if we're going to give, then we're going to go all in on this. We are going to be excellent in this. We are going to be intentional in making sure that we're going to do everything in our power to make sure we are giving what Paul needs in order so that he can say that he is well supplied and we're going to be generous and we're going to give him even beyond that. If we are able, and then we are going to send it with one of the very best, most trustworthy men that we know. So that, unlike giving to the Red Cross, we know that 100% of what we give will go to that which we are intending to give to. Christian giving should be excellent in its aim. Excellent in its aim. Again, not merely alleviating our conscience, not merely obeying the command, but being thoughtful, being aware of the situation, giving intentionally to something specific that you know enough about so that you're giving responsibly, and then being generous on top of that. Intentionality and generosity should describe all Christian giving. Christian giving is excellent, excellent in its aim. Point number three. Point number three, Christian giving is exalting in its nature. 
exalting in its nature. So look back at verse 18. Look at the end of it. So he says, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So in the beginning of this verse, Paul speaks of the relationship of their gift to Paul. And in the second part of the verse, he shifts to talking about the relationship of their gift to God. We have mentioned that even though Paul doesn't explicitly state his gratitude for the gift, even though his tone throughout this section is clearly one of thankfulness, he does something here that is far greater than merely telling them that he is pleased with their gift. Here he tells them that God is pleased with their gift. In fact, even more than that, he says that God is being rightly worshipped through your gift. Paul here borrows Old Testament sacrificial language in order to encourage the Philippians in the truth of what they have actually done through their giving to Paul. This idea of a a fragrant offering or a pleasing aroma to the Lord is used frequently throughout throughout the Torah to describe what is happening as the people bring their sacrifices to the priest and the priest burns them and offers them to God. The picture isn't there uh, to, to communicate that uh, we need to appease God's sense of smell. Like that's not the, what, what it's meaning when it says the, the fragrant aroma. The idea is of the, the smoke from the altar and the, the smell even of the burning meat ascending up into the heavens. That, that God is pleased as his people, as the Israelites, recognize their sin and dependence on God and therefore choose to sacrifice the very best of what they have to God in a way where he is the only one who receives the sacrifice. The smell isn't benefiting them. They're not getting a meal afterwards. It's all for God. The New Testament uses sacrificial language here and in a few other places to kind of to, to build on that type of thinking, to talk about how the Christian lives life. The Christian's life is to be lived now in a sacrificial way. That worships God. So Romans 12.1, Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And Peter, in 1 Peter 2, 4 and 5, he says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So those are two examples, and there's, there's many others throughout the New Testament. But Paul recognizes here, using this language in this case, that this idea of our lives as sacrifices of worship to our God incorporates our giving. And this is why it makes so much sense to collect offering in the worship service. Because it is a recognition that what the Bible says here is true and that giving is a part of worship. So there are are now many articles and studies out there that are saying that churches shouldn't be collecting offering in the worship service anymore. They give reasons like that it puts pressure and guilt on people. And even... Even, even this argument, that it is actually a, disrupt, a disruption to worship. A disruption to the worship service to give during that time. And it's not that you can't worship God through your giving by doing it online or by putting it in a box at the, when, when service is over. Some of us have to do that because otherwise we forget the checkbook every week. But the current movement by some churches to not collect offering during the worship service is not actually succeeding in some sort of effort to not make people feel uncomfortable or to keep from disrupting the worship. They're not succeeding in, any, in that in any way. What they're actually do is doing is failing to believe what the Bible says about what worship is. This type of thinking getting uncomfortable about the idea of actually giving our money during the worship service, just goes to show how far we have moved from the biblical understanding of what giving is. We're too used to understanding money as people's possessions. That's their business. 
Too used to doing that and not actually believing God that giving is another of the many ways that God has called His people to offer their lives as living sacrifices and to worship Him through their lives. And the word sacrifice in this passage, in, that, in, that, in this verse, not only reminds us that this, is, that this is worship, but it reminds us that this type of worship is something that does actually cost us something. It does actually cost us something. We are called to give generously, but giving generously and giving sacrificially are not necessarily the same thing. Giving generously has to do with the heart of the giver and possibly the needs of the recipient. So someone could see that there is a need for something that costs $100 and the person gives $150. That is generous because it is much more than what was needed. And it's not that that was a bad thing to do as a generous gift. But but if you're Bill Gates, that's not really a sacrificial gift. It's still generous, but it's not sacrificial. Giving sacrificially has to do with the circumstances in life of the one who is giving, of what what's in their heart, and it has to do with God. The recipient and possibly no one else will ever know what the one giving has given up to give what they're giving, what they've sacrificed. And that's, you know, if they're a Christian, that's how they want it, because they truly understand that their gift is to God. It's to God. This is how the Philippians gave. Turn, turn over to 2 Corinthians 8. 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 4. Is, we, we see this is how the, gift, the, the Philippians gave. Remember what Paul said to the Corinthian church here about giving to the churches in Macedonia. And Philippi is one of the Macedonian churches. So keep that in mind. Look at 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 through 4. Paul says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. So in that passage, you can see, you can hear in those words, you can see in those words right in front of you, the nature of the type of sacrificial giving that is, that Paul recognizes as pleasing to God. The heart behind what worshipful giving looks like. There are a couple of of things that you notice about what this looks like in this passage, right? First, First, you see that they are giving even though they are in a severe test of affliction. So it doesn't matter to them that they might be in the type of position that others would look at with sympathy and be like, oh, that's someone who, who should be the, the receiver of giving, not the giver when it comes to giving. That doesn't matter to them. They're in a severe test of affliction. And then you see that they have given even beyond their means, and that's the sacrificial aspect of it. That means that in order to give this gift, they will have to make adjustments to their living situation in some way. But before you think that this is telling you to be unwise in your giving and to give what you can't afford, or to give even if you don't want to give, or to give begrudgingly because you have to, notice that it also says that they gave of their own accord. In other words, they wanted to give. It says they It says they begged earnestly for the favor of taking part in this opportunity. This was a joy to them. They use the word joy. This is a joy to them, not something that they just bit their lip, cringed, and did what they thought they were supposed to do. So we can see here the type of giving that Paul is referring to when he calls the gifts of the Philippians a sacrifice that's acceptable and pleasing to God. It is something that costs them. It is a gift that means that they might have to skip a meal or might have to do without something, but nonetheless, it's something that they take great joy in and are eager to do. But in looking at this example, I I do want to stress the difference between giving beyond your means, which is commended, and giving what you can't afford, which is not. 
Just because you can give joyfully and eagerly doesn't mean that you should if you can't afford it. This means that you're giving to the church more than you can afford. You're not fulfilling your obligation of providing for yourself and your family. That is actually not what we are talking about when it comes to giving beyond your means. It is unhelpful, actually, when your giving puts you in the position that now the church or others in the church have to step in and help you. Listen, the pastors of certain churches who tell people to give money that they were going to use to pay their mortgage or their rent and trust God to provide, they are evil. That is wrong. That is sinful. Giving beyond your means simply means that you are sacrificing something that, yes, you could really use, but that you recognize that you can do without, and that not getting it doesn't mean that now someone is going to have to come in later and, and get that for you to make it work. This is not the type of giving that is exalting in its nature. Christian giving, listen, Christian giving is exalting to God as it represents the joyful, eager sacrifice of the believer's life and resources for the great privilege of being part of the promised work of God to build his church. That's what Christian giving that is exalting to God is. When Christians give in this way, their giving truly is a real act of worship. It really is, as Paul says, giving to God. And the reason that it makes so much sense that Christians will long to worship God in this way brings us to our our final point. Christian giving is inexpensive in its cost. Christian giving is inexpensive in its cost. Cost. And so, go, go back to Philippians. Look at verse 19. Philippians 4.19, again, he says, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. The re- so the reason why, even though giving does cost us something, the reason all Christian giving is actually inexpensive And what it actually costs us is because of our access as Christians to infinite riches. God has promised to provide all that we truly need from his infinite supply of his glorious riches. The one who owns everything is the same one whom we are united to in Christ. So when you compare all that we could ever even possibly give in this life, with the riches of God that we are promised here, then the actual cost to ourselves and all of our giving is so small that it's not even worth comparing. It's not even worth measuring. This is Paul making an incredibly strong promise to the Philippians about God. He's using a version of the same word that he just used in the, in the previous verse to talk about how he is well supplied. Saying, as I have been well supplied so my God will also supply all your needs. So if you can truly believe this promise, if you can really believe this promise and you can live in this promise, then sacrificial, joyful giving just becomes easier and easier because that which seems so costly apart from any trust in the promise of God suddenly becomes incredibly inexpensive in light of this promise. So when we can truly believe this promise, our mindset can kind of transition to the same type of thinking about the giving of resources that that children have or should have. So my kids might have some possessions that they have been given to them, that have been given to them by their parents. And within that relatively small scope of money and possessions that, that we allow them to make their own decisions about spending or about giving, they will always know they will always know that they are physically actually unable in their own power to give away or lose so much that they will not still be given everything that they actually need. Because the provision of what they truly need, what they truly need has nothing to do with what they possess. It has everything to do with what their parents possess. So, that type of thinking, that, that is so, that, that's true of children, but it is so much more true of our relationship with God, our Heavenly Father. Because 
Parents can fail. And unlike us as earthly fathers, our heavenly father has infinite riches and he will never fail to keep his promises. And notice what he says about these riches. He says they are riches in glory. In glory. That just points to the fact that they are present tense, infinite riches that God now possesses. This isn't like a, like a conversation with a, but hey, trust me, I'm, I'm good for it when I get paid on Friday, man. You know, that type of promise you might have heard from a buddy in college. This is God. He already possesses infinite riches. And since they are infinite, it's not difficult for him to give. In fact, that leads to another thing that we should notice about these riches. We're not told that he gives us out of these riches. Notice that. Again, indicating that they can't be depleted. But it says according to his riches. So that change of phrasing there. That means that the type of supplying of our needs that Christ is doing is intentional and particular to our needs. God doesn't just provide for us like, you know, like a rich deadbeat dad who just throws money at his children to try and make up for his lack of involvement in their lives to this point. No, God supplies our need according to, our needs according to his Riches, particular needs with particular aspects of his riches. God will supply all your needs for the specific trial, for the specific situation that you might be dealing with. If you are a Christian, that is a promise to you. But this is where it is important to see that what Paul is saying here is so, it's so completely different from that sow a seed, if you want to reap a harvest type of promise that those, those evil health and wealth Preachers are constantly using to sucker people into giving what they can't actually afford to make them, make the preachers more rich. Now, the infinite riches that we are promised are, notice, they're in Christ Jesus. That's their location. These are riches that are available to all Christians because of our union with Christ. This is why Paul is able to make this promise so confidently. It's not that God won't provide for you physically with money and resources of, resources of monetary value the same way he is providing for Paul through the gifts of the Philippians. It's not that God's not ever going to do that. I'm sure there are many stories of that kind of provision represented throughout this room. But that's not really the promise here. Here we are promised the riches of glory in Christ Jesus. The riches in glory in Christ Jesus So because of our union in Christ, we are promised that we have all that we will ever need to make it through every situation that God could ever call us to walk through in this life. That's that's the promise. It's also important here then to see this promise as, as not God doing something in response to our giving. This is not Him paying us back for our faithfulness. This truth that we read in 119, this is something that is always true of Christians in all situations. This is an unconditional, unilateral promise of God that Paul is closing not just this portion of the letter, but the entire, the entire letter with. And while it does transcend, it does transcend nicely, it just move, does move nicely from the previous point, it is clear that this is the ultimate promise that stands as the foundation for the wise and obedient application to everything in the entire letter, not merely the subject of giving. It is evident that Paul is doing this here just based on the language he is using. He begins, he begins verse 19, the final word of promise in the book, the same way that he actually began the book. So here he says, And my God will supply every need of yours. And if you flip back and look at 1, 3, chapter 1, verse 3, you see similar language. He begins the main body of the entire letter similarly with, with the phrase, I thank my God in all remembrance of you. That use calling him my God and the way he uses that. This is the only place in these two verses where he sounds like this in the whole letter. The grammar in these verses make it obvious that this is how Paul is bookending the entire thing. Not merely concluding, he's not merely concluding the section on giving. 
So all that to say then, so what we have in verse 19 is not the conditional promise that this is how God will act towards you because of your faithfulness. That is not what he's being said. But rather that this is the promise of God for all those who are in Christ Jesus as they endeavor to live according to every promise and every imperative in this whole letter. So, that means that God will supply every Christian, every Christian with exactly what they need for every need, for every situation, because it is available to us in our union with Christ. This is a promise then that what you need to live obediently for him will always be supplied to you. It will always be supplied to you. That is a promise of God. And this is, this is what is so key, so critical. The, the promise is to supply your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. It's not according to our desires or our feelings or how we would like to see our needs met. He knows. That means when we are in a difficult spot and we're in a painful trial or we're in a seemingly impossible situation, we aren't necessarily promised relief. We aren't necessarily promised an end to the pain. We're not promised a tangible solution of any kind. Now, this promise just might mean that he strengthens you to stand firm in the trial through the promises of his word. That's supplying your needs. And it might mean that he brings an example of another faithful brother or sister in Christ before you so that you can be encouraged to remain steadfast. That's supplying your needs. And it might just mean that you, that you are reminded afresh of the glorious gospel that has saved you. That you have been saved from the eternity in hell that you deserve. You've been saved from that Not because of anything that you did, but because of what Christ has done. You have been saved from eternity in hell, and you have been saved to live eternally with God. With the same God now that you have been reconciled to, you've been saved to live with Him for eternity in paradise forever, when you should be suffering His wrath for all of eternity. And then in light of that reminder, you're able to turn back to face your trial and faithfully endure. That's providing for your needs. That's how we see his provision in our union in Christ Jesus. So yes, God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And yes, the heart of the king is in his hands and he turns it however he wishes. And we will see him act, I'm sure, in in wonderful ways in this physical world for our benefit. But the true riches, the true riches that we have in Christ go so far beyond the physical. And they are promised to us by God and they are guaranteed to us because of our union in Christ. And through those riches, it's through those riches that you, Christian, will have all that you ever need. All that you ever need to walk faithfully, to walk confidently, to endure whatever situation you're in. To be able to do that before him in every situation from this day until the moment that has been ordained for you to take your last breath. The riches in Christ Jesus are promised to you for all of that time and for all of eternity. And until that moment, that moment when you take your final breath, we have the certain promise that our God will supply every need of ours according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Christian, in Christ Jesus, in in Christ Jesus, we are promised that we will never, we will never experience true need. We will never know true hopelessness. We will always Always, in every moment, have everything we truly need, we truly need, through Christ. That is our 
promise. That is a promise from God. And it is certain. And we can take that promise to the bank. Father, we are so thankful um, for the, the truth in this word. We are humbled when we think of what we have been given in Christ. Lord, that not only is our eternity secure and taken care of, and far beyond what we could ever deserve or even imagine, but even in this life you have promised to give us all that we need to live for you, to live faithfully for you. Riches that are promised to us through our union with Christ. Fathers, I pray that we would be um, that we would be faithful, that we would be found faithful in not just our giving, but in how we live and in how we understand what is truly a need and what isn't a need. God, that we would live our lives in light of and through the lens of our union and identity in Jesus Christ. And Jesus, we are so thankful. So thankful for your work on the cross. The life you lived, the perfect life you lived, the death you died on the cross, and your resurrection from the dead that guarantees these things for us. Jesus, we do truly thank you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.